scripture reading this morning begins in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We're reading verses 1 through 8. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. This is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God? And they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 22 is our text this morning. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. And also men of Tyre who were living there, who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about just as it grew dark at at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath. I commanded that the door should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, have compassion on me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Let's pray. God, we look to you in the revelation of your word. We trust in you, O Lord. We trust in your word. We trust in your Holy Spirit. We look to the promise that you've given us that the Spirit would lead us into all the truth, and we pray that you would grant now as we consider this portion of your holy word that you would grant us the Spirit's ministry in our hearts, that we might embrace what you've revealed in the Holy Scriptures, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. During the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, great reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin led the way in the recover, uh, recovery of Orthodox doctrine and the restoration of biblical worship. Luther, more the former, Calvin, both doctrine and worship. Prior to Luther and Calvin in the 14th and 15th centuries, two forerunners of the Reformation, John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, paved the way by, uh, for Luther and Calvin by teaching the Bible as the sole authority for doctrine and worship and by translating the Bible into uh, the common language of the people. But long before Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, and Calvin, in the middle of the 5th century B.C., there was an ancient reformer named Nehemiah who led the way for reformation of both doctrine and worship in Israel. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem after the return of uh, the exiles from the Babylonian captivity to serve as its governor. Not only, he not only led the, the uh, rebuilding of the walls and the gates in the face of much opposition, some of that uh, violent threats of opposition uh, by the enemy. But he was a catalyst in, in Jerusalem for religious reform. In chapter 8, we see uh, doctrinal reform. Remember, that's the great chapter that we, uh, we see the, uh, law, the reading of the law of God restored there in, in chapter 8. And uh, as there's worship reform as well in the restoration of, of the feast, in, in particular the Feast of Booths. And then Nehemiah went back to King Artaxerxes of Persia. He returned to Babylon. And while he was gone, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. When he returned to Jerusalem again, he found Judah in a state of spiritual decline. And this ancient reformer instituted further reforms that we see recorded for us here in chapter 13, the expulsion of Tobiah, an enemy of God who had taken up residence in God's house. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. The restitution of tithing. Chapter 13, verses 10 through 14. The rebuke of mixed marriages among the people of Israel. Chapter 13, 
verses 23 through 29. And so great was the spiritual decline in, uh, in that period of Israel's history that a foundational aspect of its religious worship was being threatened. God's people were outrightly desecrating the Sabbath. And Nehemiah led the way, reforming this aspect of Israel, uh, Israel's piety. Dear congregation, just as in the day of Nehemiah, today God's people are desecrating the Sabbath day. New Testament knows of no Holy Week. Easter and Christmas are not holy days. The only holy day that remains for God's people is the first day of every week, 52 days in the year. The holy day of the Sabbath that God has instituted. And my question before you today is, are you desecrating the Sabbath by, the, by your behavior on this day, by your attitudes towards this holy commandment of God? The restoration of the Sabbath is a key to reformation and revival. It's not the only key. For example, in Acts chapter 1, we see that expectant faith, devotion to prayer, order in the church, especially in its government. These are all ingredients uh, of uh, revival, all keys to revival. Nevertheless, the Sabbath is one of those keys. And until we see this element of the church's worship and practice reformed, I am convinced that the church will not see significant reformation and revival in our day. This is worth our consideration this morning. This is, a, this is a, one of the primary principles of the Christian experience. Today we're going to uh, consider how uh, Nehemiah successfully reformed the Sabbath in his day. How did he do that? He recognized its violation, he warned its violators, he restored its observance. And that means you must recognize Sabbath-keeping as a valid principle today. That's the first thing we're going to consider. Secondly, you must heed the warning to Sabbath-breakers. Thirdly, you must restore Sabbath-worship. Sabbath worship must be restored in the church, but the church is comprised of individual believers in the body of Christ. And that means you must do your part in restoring the Sabbath in the church. So in the first place, and this is uh, just by way of information, the longest point, and one of the reasons is that I'm going to give you five proofs that the Sabbath is valid for today. And that's going to take some time, and I make no apologies for that, because I am zealous to preach this sermon this morning as we 
remember the Protestant Reformation and our need to reform as a church of Jesus Christ. So in the first place, you must recognize Sabbath keeping as a valid principle for the church today. Verses 15 and 16. We get at this point by way of what Nehemiah observed when he came back to Jerusalem again. He'd come to Jerusalem. Uh, we read in the early chapters of Nehemiah, he received permission from the king of Persia, from Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer to the king. He pre- uh, received permission to come back uh, and to restore, uh, to build, rebuild the walls and uh, to restore its gates, uh, to restore uh, Jerusalem to the condition it was before uh, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, before the Babylonian exile. And then he went back, and now he's come again, and he sees that this important principle of God's people is, is being violated. In those days, when he returned from Persia, what Nehemiah found in verses 15 and 16 is the hustle and bustle of everyday business in Jerusalem. In Judah, God's people were treading the wine presses, and merchants of Judah were bringing merchandise in through the gates of Jerusalem to peddle it there. Grain, wine, grapes, figs, other kinds of loads, every kind of load. And there were also men of Tyre living in Jerusalem who brought fish and all sorts of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people and in Jerusalem. both to the people and, and uh, in Ju- uh, Judah abroad and, and to Jerusalem. And these were, were not trivial violations of God's law, but they were gross, widespread violations of God's law, of the Sabbath command, and that struck the very heart of the Sabbath. Once Nehemiah had gone, it must have begun as a trickle. And the merchants began to sneak through the the gates of Jerusalem. And then, as trickles are apt to do, it became a flood. Floods of merchandise went back and forth through the city, through the gates on the Sabbath day. Now, what's wrong with that? Someone might ask. People have to eat, don't they? So what's wrong with selling food on the, exam, uh, on the Sabbath day? And people have to buy their stuff sometime, don't they? So why not on the Sabbath? Well, in the first place, God had commanded they, that they were not to work on the Sabbath. And the injunction concerning work was so comprehensive that it included even their animals. You're not to work, God had said. You or your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your ox, your donkey, or your cattle. So not only were merchants, not only were the, the, the merchants working on the Sabbath day, but they were causing others to work. God's people were causing others to work including their servants and animals that bore the burdens of merchandise being carried out of, uh, in and out of Jerusalem's gates. 
And it wasn't only the selling of merchandise, it was the buying of it as well. The people of Jerusalem were guilty of causing others to work by participating in commerce. They were supporting the violation of the Sabbath. That's what Nehemiah saw as he returned to Jerusalem, and he recognized it as a violation of the Sabbath. Before the Sabbath can be reformed, the church of Jesus Christ and her members must acknowledge its violation, which means they must first recognize that the Sabbath is a valid principle for God's people today, that it's a valid principle for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, strangely, there's a negative view of the Sabbath in the contemporary church. Whereas once there was a uniform observance of the Sabbath in, uh, among evangelical churches of all denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, there's now no concept of the Sabbath whatsoever in the vast majority of churches in evangelicalism. It's not even taught, let alone observed. The church today has more interest in establishing why the Sabbath isn't a valid principle for us today, why we don't need to adhere to the fourth commandment. And whereas there was once in the day, especially in the early days of the establishment of this, uh, of, the, of America as a nation, whereas once there was an emphasis on the keeping of the Sabbath in the preaching and teaching of Reformed churches, that emphasis has disappeared in many of them. It's important then to establish the biblical case for Sabbath keeping as a valid principle for the church today. I strongly urge you to listen carefully. If you uh, somehow, if you've convinced yourself, if someone else, something you've read has convinced you that uh, we're no longer bound to keep the fourth commandment, I urge you to listen carefully to these five proofs. And I could offer you more. I'm being conservative here, given time constraints of a morning worship service like this. I promise you. In the first place, the first principle that establishes the Sabbath as a principle for the church's observance today is that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, patterned after God's own example of six days of creation work and one day of rest at the foundation of the world. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And just as the other creation ordinances in Genesis chapter 2, namely work and marriage, the Sabbath ordinance is perpetual and binding on all people, and especially the church throughout her existence. Second, God codified the Sabbath command. In that summary of the moral law, which we call the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, Deut Deuteronomy 21 through 21, we read that this morning, where God gives as the basis of the Sabbath his own pattern of work and rest at creation. Orthodox teaching 
has recognized the moral law, that which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, as perpetually binding on all people of all generations. That means all God's people of all generations. Doesn't it seem strange to you that one command among ten is regarded by God's people as no longer relevant to them. That's not the case for any of the other commands, not for the other nine. No form of open idolatry or profaning God's name would be tolerated among conservative evangelicals today. Adultery would never be looked upon as permissible. Serious Christians would never excuse murder or theft, for example. And yet the fourth command is virtually disregarded in the vast majority of churches and by their members today. God has given ten commandments. Not nine, but ten. Third, Exodus 31 Verses 12 to 17 shows that the Sabbath is a perpetual sign. The Sabbath is identified here in Exodus 31, 12 to 17, as a perpetual sign. Just like circumcision and the Passover are identified as signs of the covenant, same Hebrew word, uh, ot, is used of circumcision, it's used of the Passover. Same word is used of the Sabbath in Exodus uh, 31. It marked out Israel as unique. Other nations around Israel didn't observe one day of rest, six days of work, one day of rest. Furthermore, just as the old covenant signs of circumcision and the Passover were transformed by Christ, into the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the old covenant sign of the seventh-day Sabbath was transformed into the new covenant sign of the first day, or the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. That's the rationale. That's the biblical rationale. That's the rationale that our confessional standards give or the transformation of worship on the seventh day to the first day of the week. And why is that? Well, of course, it's because our Savior arose powerfully, wondrously, miraculously on the first day of the week. And so we gather not on Easter as a holy day, but we gather on the first day of the week, every first day of the week of the year to worship our risen Savior. Fourth, it's clear in the New Testament that there is still a day for God, that God has set apart a day for himself. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation verses 1-10. What day was that? It was the first day of the week. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week, and it's honored by the early church. You can find that in John 
chapter 20, verses 1, 19, and 26. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, the day of Pentecost took place on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, that's where Paul's preaching till midnight uh, on the first day. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, God's people are assembling on the first day. There are indeed New Testament warnings about honoring days. Galatians 4.10, Colossians 4, uh, rather 2.16, Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. But these all refer to the elaborate Jewish calendar of holidays in the ceremonial law. That can't apply to the Sabbath day, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, because the Sabbath is not a component of the ceremonial law. It's a component of the moral law, the perpetual moral law that God has given us summarized in the Ten Commandments. The New Testament itself clearly establishes the Lord's Day, the expression of the new creation ordinance of the Sabbath and the fourth commandment of God's moral law. Furthermore, in the, in the section of scripture that we read in Matthew today, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we find, uh, as the, the, the Pharisees were continually doing, uh, we find them accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. What you're doing is contrary to the law. What your disciples are doing is contrary to the law. Now I ask you, what, what better opportunity did Jesus have in the course of his ministry, than when these Pharisees were accusing both him and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath, what more perfect opportunity was there for him to say to them, you silly Pharisees, don't you know that I've come to inaugurate the new covenant? There is no longer any Sabbath. I'm not breaking the Sabbath. Now, Jesus did argue that he wasn't breaking the Sabbath, but he argued that on the basis of mercy, the working of mercy in those cases, which is permitted on the Sabbath, Jesus clearly taught. No, he didn't, he didn't say to, to these teachers of the law, the Sabbath has been abrogated. It's, it's abrogated. It's, it's part of the ceremonial law. It's no longer a valid principle for God's people today. What did he say? He said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the sovereign Lord. I'm the one who instituted the Sabbath at creation. And his rising on the first day of the week sealed that first day, transformed the Sabbath from seventh day to first day for God's people of all generations. Fifth, an an argument here from redemptive historical theology, from redemptive history. The Sabbath is a freedom made possible by redemption. The preface to the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 2, and the basis for the Sabbath command given in Deuteronomy 
5, which we read today, reveals this to us. The Sabbath is a gift because on that day, God's people Shabbat on it. They stop work. They Shabbat. They rest on the Sabbath day. Exodus 34, verse 21. Only free people do that. Under bondage in Egypt... They didn't dare stop work under their taskmasters. But when Jehovah freed them from bondage, he enabled them to cease from work every week and rest. The Sabbath is a sign of grace and freedom, not of bondage, the way most people uh, view it today. That it's like a straitjacket that binds me. There are rules and regulations. I can't do this and I can't do that. No, no. God has given the Sabbath as a means of our freedom in Christ. He's released us. He's redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's delivered us from bondage to sin. And he has enabled us the wondrous privilege of resting in him on the Lord's day. Slaves work all the time. They work their fingers to the bone. But free people, God's people, have the liberty of rest, including servants and livestock and sojourners in Israel's day. The parallel here to our redemption is clear, isn't it? That our spiritual rest was made possible by Christ's redemption. Our rest isn't merely a physical rest on the Lord's day, on the Christian Sabbath, but a resting in Christ and his finished work, a coming away from all of the ordinary things of this world, including work, and the things that occupy us otherwise, and coming before God in holy worship together uh, in in the assembly of the saints, and uh, worshiping God in private in our families. This is a wondrous blessing, and it's a great freedom for God's people. So when you insist on cluttering the Sabbath with work, and causing others to work and participating in the buying of and selling of goods, you fail to recognize that God has secured redemption for you. It's a failure of faith. Because by working and not resting, you're saying that you can't trust God to provide for you. You have to keep working, and you have to work on the Lord's day because your life rests on your efforts. It's a failure of compassion because when you work on the Lord's day or when you participate in commerce on the Lord's day, you're causing others to work, and they won't enjoy rest. Now, someone will object even if I don't eat, even if I don't sh- uh, at restaurants on the Lord's Day, even if, I, even if I don't shop at stores on Sunday, they're still going to be open. 
But that fact doesn't justify your doing business on the Lord's day. Because in doing so, you're supporting the profaning of the Sabbath by others. Good minister friend of mine, who frequented a certain restaurant during the six days of the week, he got to know the, the owner of this restaurant well. He spoke to the, the owner because the owner professed to be a Christian. He says he sought to instruct the owner. Why are, you, why are you keeping your doors open on the Lord's day? You know what that owner told him? He says there's a big church right down the street. And the majority of our customers come from that church on the Lord's Day. They flood these doors every Sunday. They come here to eat. Imagine what would happen in a community that was largely Christians and whose residents decided they were no longer going to do business on the Sabbath. Christian business owners would have to close on the Lord's Day and the majority of the populace wouldn't be buying on the Sabbath, so even non-Christian business owners would be forced to make good business decisions and close their doors on the Lord's Day. And then the public would realize that they'd have to make necessary preparations on Saturday, which is what God's law demands. So it's a failure of faith. It's a failure of compassion, and it's a choice of bondage. When you violate the Sabbath day, when you don't recognize the Sabbath as a valid principle, and when you don't follow the principles that God has laid down in his word, uh, either by direct command or by good and necessary consequence in the scriptures. It's a choice of bondage because you are deifying your work. You're subjecting yourself to a continuous treadmill that God meant to interrupt weekly on the Sabbath day. And you're saying, no, I want to be a slave. I want to be a slave to my work. I want to return to Egypt. I want to run frustrated and exhausted to Walmart or the grocery store on the Lord's Day. I want to eat out at restaurants. I want to pay my bills then. I want to complete my school assignments then. I want to finish my paperwork that I didn't have time to do at the end of Last week, I want to prepare lesson plans for the coming week. I want to wash my cars. I want to mow my lawn. I want to work on my income taxes. I want to be a slave. I don't want the physical and spiritual rest that God offers that he's designed for me in the Sabbath. I assure you, that God's zeal for his holy day has not waned since the day of creation, since he instituted it for a principle 
in the lives of his people throughout all of the generations of his church. And if you view the fourth command as invalid for the church today, I urge you to revisit the scriptures, to carefully study confessional standards, not just our own, but uh, the confessional uh, standards of other denominations, and study the OPC directory of worship. You can find that online at opc.org and see that this is what the This is what our confessions say, not because they have somehow uh, wrestled it out, wrenched it out of the scriptures, but because that's what the scriptures say. This is what our book of church order says, because that's what what the scriptures say. God's pattern is six days and stop for one day. And on that day, the commerce machine is to be shut down. It's a way of saying that Work and commerce isn't my God. These principles remain for God's people. And even though our culture and our government is non-covenantal and pays no attention whatsoever to this important principle, you must, and you must acknowledge the Sabbath as a valid principle for the church of Jesus Christ today and acknowledge its violation. Secondly, you must heed the warning to Sabbath breakers. Notice first that Nehemiah wanted uh, the the merchants to understand what, what they were doing. Verse 15, he wanted them to understand that this was a violation of the Sabbath, so he he rebuked them uh, at the end of uh, verse 15. And then he reprimanded the nobles who were apparently next in command during his leave of absence from Jerusalem. Notice, second, the strong language that he uses in verse 17. He doesn't merely say it was a bad idea that uh, they were taking uh, loads of wares in and out the Sabbath gates. He says it's evil. He says you're committing wickedness in doing so. Furthermore, he accuses them of profaning the day in verse 17. To to profane means to treat something holy with abuse, with irreverence, with contempt, to desecrate that day. And that's what you do when you work and participate in commerce on the Sabbath day. You're treating the day that God has made holy, the day that God has sanctified and blessed, a day holy unto the Lord your God with irreverence or contempt. And Christians today who have somehow convinced themselves or have somehow been convinced convinced by others that the Sabbath isn't a, a valid principle for the church of Jesus Christ in our age, ought to take careful heed of this warning. Notice third that uh, that, uh, Nehemiah contends with the nobles on the basis of Israel's history in verse 18. The substance of the reprimand is this. Haven't you learned anything from church history? Haven't you learned anything from Israel's history? 
from the sin of your fathers that put us in the place of trouble that we're in today. This is what brought trouble on us before, a violation of the Sabbath. This is what sent us into exile in Babylon, ignoring God's law. Before the exile to Babylon, there had been a growing impatience with the Sabbath command. In the 8th century B.C., Amos could see the merchants and their customers resisting the weekly shutdown of business. And their sentiments are recorded in Amos chapter 8 and verse 5. When will the new moon be over so that we may buy grain? And the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market. And sure enough, by Jeremiah's time, which began around 625 B.C., they got their way. Load after load of merchandise was pouring into the city. And surely, Jeremiah 17, verses 19 through 23, was on Nehemiah's mind as he was reminding God's people in Jerusalem, of their history. Jeremiah 17, 19, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come, and go out as well in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all inhabitants of Jerusalem, who come in through these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves. And do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. And then uh, by... God's displeasure uh, was, was made known in Jerusalem, in the fall of Jerusalem in 586 uh, B.C., when its gates are burned with fire. Listen to uh, Jeremiah's explanation of this in verse 27, chapter 17 of that prophecy. But if you do not listen to me, Keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Then I will kindle a fire on its gates, and I will devour its palace, the palaces of Jerusalem, and that fire will not be quenched. That's what happened in Jerusalem when it fell in 586. That's why Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls and to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem. The profaning of the Sabbath brings God's displeasure. God doesn't take this lightly. What's Nehemiah's concern? He's concerned that history is going to repeat itself. In Jerusalem, in his day, God had brought Jeremiah's prophecy of judgment to pass, and it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and exile to Babylon. Now he's saying the Lord has brought us back to the land. We've just finished 
rebuilding from the destruction, and yet you're going down the same road again. You're adding to God's wrath on Israel. And this is a warning sign today. It's a warning sign to the church of Jesus Christ, and we ought to pay careful attention. For in our day, the Sabbath isn't merely being threatened. It's been trampled underfoot like grapes in the wine press in Jerusalem and Judah. Is it any surprise then that the church of Jesus Christ today has fallen under God's displeasure? Is it any surprise that the church of Jesus Christ is weak today? No doubt the current state of spiritual decline in the church is due, at least in part, to its failure to keep the Sabbath holy. Are you ignoring the Sabbath command? Are you part of the reason why the displeasure of God is heaped up against his beloved bride? How long will you continue to ignore this perpetual command binding on all generations of people in general and especially upon Christians? How long will you continue to ignore God's holy ordinance and refuse to heed its warning if you're disregarding the Sabbath and God is warning you today and calling you to repent because God sees Sabbath breaking. He sees a violation of the Sabbath as evil. You must acknowledge the Sabbath as a valid principle for today. You must heed the Warning to Sabbath breakers, and then finally, you must restore Sabbath observance. It must be restored in the church. It must be restored in the lives of individual believers, verses 19 to 22. Nehemiah's zeal for God's holy ordinance was so great that he could not let it go with just a warning. He also took several measures to ensure that the Sabbath Observance was restored. This is classic Nehemiah. All through the book of Nehemiah, he's portrayed as a a man of action. He's not a man who sits on the sidelines uh, and has others get things done. He's a man that that carries things out uh, in, in his actions. He looked to a sovereign God for help, and in that sovereign God, he put his trust but he took responsibility uh, before God as the governor of Jerusalem, and he took that responsibility seriously to restore Sabbath observance. In the first place, he commanded that the city gates be closed on Friday at sundown, the beginning of Israel's Sabbath, uh, the preparation day and remain closed until Saturday evening at the close of the Sabbath. Verse 19, the gates were closed. Well, that pretty well ensured that merchants couldn't go back and forth through the gates and sell their wares. Secondly, he stationed his own servants at the gates, just as he had come to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and restore the gates of Jerusalem, and his own servants came with him, and they participated. So he stationed his servants at the gates of Jerusalem so that no one would be allowed, so the gates couldn't be opened. And they guarded 
those gates. This recalls uh, that earlier situation when he, he did indeed station his servants at, uh, before, the, before the walls and before the gates, before they were uh, rebuilt so that uh, enemy attacks on the city could be repelled. And now he's concerned about attacks on this holy ordinance of the Sabbath. And the traders and the merchants still didn't think he was serious, so they camped outside the, the gates, outside the city walls. And he warned the traders that he's going to do bodily harm to them if they continued to do that. He was going to assault them physically if they continued to show up outside the walls. Third, he had the wisdom to pass the gatekeeping function on to those to whom God had given the responsibility in his law. The Levites, verse 22. Here we get some insight on, as to why uh, God would establish such a, a religious function in Israel. Yes, they were to be as guards at the gates to warn Israel of uh, approaching enemies, but they were to jealously and zealously guard the Sabbath day so that, no, uh, so that what was happening in Jerusalem at this time wouldn't happen. That was their role. And we see furtherly, uh, now further the consequences of withholding uh, the Levites' portion from them, as was, was happening uh, in Nehemiah's day. And so, wanting to ensure that they accepted this task as a holy one, Nehemiah commanded them to purify themselves, to come as gatekeepers, to sanctify the Sabbath days. All, all these measures are put in place to restore proper Sabbath observance. What can you do to restore proper Sabbath observance? You can prepare for it. Uh, this is not a novel principle for this congregation. You can take care of the, the work of the six days, the activities of the six days. You can uh, to, to bring those to a close by a Saturday evening so that they're put aside, so that they're not going to plague you on the Lord's day. Furthermore, you can prepare yourself spiritually to come and worship the Lord instead of of uh, working your fingers to the bones, instead of uh, making yourself a, a slave to your work and to your activities, you can cease that at a reasonable time on Saturday, and you can prepare to come and engage in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Friday was preparation day for Israel. Saturday is preparation day for God's people today. This is exactly what our denominational standards teach us to do. I know I'm, I'm going long. I knew I would go long when I, when I uh, made the decision to preach this sermon. 
and I appreciate your patience, but this is what our, our denominational standards urge us to do. And if you, if you have a uh, larger catechism, Westminster Standard, shorter catechism with proof text, you can, you, can, you can do what I've done. I didn't come to my convictions on the Sabbath because somebody else told me that the Sabbath is a valid principle for the church today. I was introduced to the Sabbath by a Southern Presbyterian preacher in Lawton, Oklahoma, at a PCA church, and God struck my heart when he preached on the Sabbath. It took me a long time, I'll admit, to reform my ways and to conform my practices on the Sabbath day to what God has designed. But that's when my wife and I began. When we were very early in our marriage, we'd not been even married for a year. And God in his providence brought us to that church, that PCA church, and that godly Southern Presbyterian Mississippi man taught us the Sabbath. And I will never forget the day. And I've told this story here before, but not all of you have heard it. When my wife and I were driving out of town on the Lord's Day, and uh, we lived nearby to our pastor. And my pastor and his wife uh, saw us driving away from the church, and they were driving to the church on the Lord's Day. And we got back from our vacation, and our dear pastor's wife said to me, Now, Dan... That's what she called me. Why did I see you and Sylvia driving out of town on the Lord's Day? And I can tell you that that struck to me in the heart. That was a knife in my heart and a twist in my heart just as much as that sermon that I heard on the Lord's Day. And that's what God is doing, you see. He's reforming us. He's conforming us to the image of his son, and, and the Sabbath is dear and near to God's heart, and it's dear and near to the Lord Jesus Christ, and God is in the process of conforming us to the image of Christ. And so we ought to have a zeal for Sabbath keeping. How is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? Westminster Confession 117. The Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by an holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercise of God's worship. And to that end... We are to prepare our hearts with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be more free and fit for the duties of that day. Are you doing that? Do we fail to do that? Of course, all of us fail to do that. And none of us carries this out perfectly. And so often I hear the argument that, oh, well, I hear in your conversation, for example, in, in, in Sunday, I hear, I hear uh, the world creep in. Does that happen? 
Does it happen to me? Well, yeah, of course it does. Does it happen to others in the congregation? Yes, of course it does. Does that mean I shouldn't seek to change that? I shouldn't seek to reform? I shouldn't repent of, of engaging in that kind of behavior on the Lord's day? Of course I should recognize that this is a significant principle for God's people and that he longs for me, he longs for us to sanctify ourselves, to labor in our pursuit of sanctification as God is sanctifying us by his grace to uh, add our efforts to, the, to those sanctifying efforts of God and to be uh, conformed to his word. If God is pleased, and only if God is pleased, a restoration of the Sabbath today will lead to reformation and revival. And we need to be as energized, as reformed people as God is for the passion of this day. Isn't the Sabbath given to us to be a weekly revival of the things of God? Should we not pray with the psalmist, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your failing love, O Lord, and grant your salvation. Psalm 85. You must acknowledge the Sabbath as a valid principle for uh, the church today. You must heed the warning to Sabbath breakers. You must work toward the restoration of the Sabbath ordinance and the Sabbath observance of God's people today. I challenge you to search the scriptures and our subordinate standards. I challenge you to heed the warnings. And I challenge you to learn from these wondrous passages such as Jeremiah, what God has in store for Sabbath keepers. Learn that God has your good in mind and not your harm. His purpose isn't to impose strict regulations on us so so that we can enjoy the day. The Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus wants you to learn to view the Sabbath as uh, a, a day different from the other six days of the week, to sanctify the, day, uh, the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, and to rest in him. Remember when the Lord uh, provided manna for Israel. Each household was to gather only what they could eat that day. So much for each person in the tent. And they weren't to leave any for the next morning. Why? Because God wanted them to trust him for their daily bread in the manna the next day. But some didn't trust him, and they left what was left over uh, until the morning, and it bred worms and rotted. God also told Moses that, that there wouldn't be manna on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, but to instruct the Israelites to gather twice as much on the sixth day, which would tie them over till they could gather again on the first day of the week. And the Lord made a special provision on the sixth day. Remember? The extra manna gathered on the sixth day wouldn't rot and develop worms as it did on the other day. 
And so they were instructed to gather two days' worth on the sixth day. And what happened? Again, they didn't trust God. And some people went out on the seventh day to gather. But surprise, there was no manna to gather on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day. And look at Moses' response in Exodus 16 and verse 29. See, he said, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And in Exodus 16.30, we read that the people figured it out, and they rested. Not only must you learn to trust, but you must learn to rest. God has given you a day of rest. It's a glorious day. God has given his beloved church the Sabbath as a gift for their spiritual food, and yet God's people refuse to rest. They insist on filling it with common, everyday activities of their own pleasures. And the result is that instead of having holy rest on that holy day, there's a holy unrest, uh, there's an unrestlessness on this holy day uh, instead, and it's an unholy unrestlessness the wonderful spiritual blessing that we are promised in Isaiah 58 if we will keep the Sabbath day. Verse 13, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord, honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. God promises to us if we will keep the Sabbath holy, we will delight. We will find our delight in him. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. That, dear Christians, is the language of victory. God will give us victory over our sins. And I will feed you on the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That's covenant language. And it's beautiful because God says, if you will keep my Sabbath day, then I will keep my covenant promises with you. Learn to trust Learn to rest. It's what we must do. We must turn aside from our own works and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Learn to trust and learn to rest in your Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh God, our Father, you have been the dwelling place of your people throughout our generations. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and to the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you have established this eternal principle from the very foundations of the world, from the very creation, from the very six days of work that you did 
in making all things and from that rest of the seventh day. And you gave it to us, O Lord. You handed it to us as a holy principle. And we pray that you would disabuse us of notions to the contrary. Disabuse us, O Lord, of notions that the Sabbath is no longer important today. It's not a valid principle today. Help us to heed the warnings. Help us to reform ourselves. Every one of us, O Lord, struggles with our keeping of the Sabbath. If we believe this principle is valid, O Lord, we, we struggle from Sabbath to Sabbath. And sometimes we rebel as well and say, when, when are the gates going to be open so I can do what I want to do? O Lord, take these notions from our hearts and restore us and renew us and reform us. Reform us in our individual lives, in our, in our spirituality, and reform the spirituality of the church in our day, and cause the church to be reformed, and bring revival, O Lord. Bring renewal in the church, and bring awakening, O Lord, once again we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.